0: Welcome to another episode of Antidotes. I am Christine, your host. This week, we are getting a little bit off of our typical civilian medicine path, and we are going to be talking to someone that was an army medic, like I was, but very different in the fact that they actually did something with it, which I did not. So this week, we have Pete. Welcome, Pete. Thank you. So Pete, I was in the reserves you are in the reserves now, but you were active duty?
1: Yeah, I've, I've kind of made the rounds a little bit. I was active duty, and then I transitioned to uh, Mass National Guard. And then I transitioned, uh, well, to nothing, I guess, technically, the IRR. And then I, you know, fell for the recruiter spiel and ended up in the reserves, such as where I am right now.
0: I'm actually still in the IRR, and I get so many phone calls and emails, and they're like, "We need medics, come on back in." I was like, "No, no, no, I'm gonna stick with this nurse practitioner." <laughs> That's a
1: different gets... uh, th- different response than I had. I was like, "You know what? This is a great idea. Totally <laughs> a yes, to six more years. Let's do this."
0: <laughs> this sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> so, how long have you been in total?
1: Um, I think I, I think I'm approaching nine years. I think nine years in a couple of weeks.
0: Well, at that point, you kind of have to just stay in for the retirement. I mean,
1: that's what everyone tells me. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So did you start out as a whiskey as a medic?
1: Yeah. You know, I started off, I, I joined a little later in life. I um, I had tried uh, several, several times over over a long time to uh, to get in. Uh, first, like straight out of high school, I, I had tried, I had some interest in the Air Force initially, and then it kind of evolved into the Army. I had some knee surgery. I had bilateral femoral osteotomies when I was 14, which hmm. is kinda of something people don't generally like to take into the military.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So so that was kind of a, a big a big barrier for getting in. But I had done pretty well on all of my high school testing. So I kept getting phone calls and I just kept trying and trying and trying. I think I had four or five tries before. Finally, when I was 28, they were like, you know what, we let's get you a, a waiver. Let's see what's going on. And things were good. They let me in and you know so i i joined with the idea i had always wanted to be a medic in the army and i had done a delayed enlistment because you know all throughout the process of going through the waiver and and you know seeing going to consults and seeing different physicians to get cleared for for military service uh, that position was available and then when i finally got the meps that position wasn't available anymore so i i had to delay my enlistment only a few months on um, up till march and then um, i could finally actually go in as a whiskey
0: When I uh, signed up, they tried to make me do like the medic slash LPN, like the extended one. And I was like, no, 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 I don't want to do that. (laughs) And I like walked out the door and then they called me like an hour later and they're like, oh, one slot just opened up. And it's like, funny how that works. Those recruiters, yeah, they can't be sneaky. That's but.
1: exactly what happened to me. They tried to, um, they offered me, and this is no joke, they offered me an airborne plumber position, which especially <laughs> now being in for a while, I know that you can't really offer an airborne position at maps. Right. But that's what they, they said. It's a plumber position with an airborne identifier. Do you want it? And I was like, well, no, I want to be a medic. And uh, I, I also left maps, And I'm, I'm from... Um, West of New York. I'm from like the Buffalo, Niagara Falls area originally. So there's the Niagara Falls map is, where, map. is where I was at. And it's a good 45 minute drive home. And I had like just pulled in my driveway before they called me. And they were like, hey, we found a 68 whiskey slot for you. I was like, okay, I guess I'll be there in another hour. So
0: <laughs> I'll drive, on back. Yeah, I'll drive for, on back. For anyone that doesn't know, Army medics are classified under the designation 68 whiskey. That's your MOS, your military occupation specialty so we keep calling them whiskeys so when we say that that's we mean army medic for anyone not in the military
1: yeah or, or i don't know if it had changed but it used to be healthcare specialist and then i heard it was combat medic again but i'm not really entirely sure since they split off the uh, mos's
0: yeah so they when i went through it was definitely healthcare specialist because oh yeah me too because you couldn't have women with an mos with the word combat in it because women were not allowed in combat actually until 2016, mm-hmm. and I actually just did an episode on uh, General Anime Mae Hayes with uh, the Good Nurse, Bad Nurse podcast, mm-hmm. and who was, she was the first female general, and so a lot of the stuff she did kind of helped with the whole... Uh, women getting into combat and stuff.
1: And and that's a different topic entirely that we can totally get into because I I know that especially amongst like Bravos and combat arms and whatnot that, you know, there's definitely some people that are split on the issue. But, you know, being overseas, especially as a a medical provider, that's totally something that's needed. You know, it's like a large gap that we would have is trying to treat the female population and just having our hands tied because we just were not the right gender.
0: Yeah. So... I just released the bonus episode for that Haley was talking about where she did CPR on a female patient in Saudi Arabia, obviously a Muslim country. Mm-hmm. and they were up in arms that male EMTs and paramedics were coming onto the campus and that they would see them and they weren't allowed there. So kind of the opposite of that. And I you know I know that a lot of women want to do it I'm not saying every woman can do it, but there certainly are women that can do it. I mean, I joined as a medic because I knew that if I was to get deployed, it would be the closest I could get to being, you know, on the ground.
1: Yeah. And you know, there's a lot of bullshit that goes around with that too. Pardon my language, but because <laughs> there are women there, like, it's not like, like yeah. Oh, there are no women in combat. It's like, we have cooks that are women. There were, there were medics there. We had this weird rotation with national guard uh, engineer units on my cop where I was. And I think, I think Texas, I think they came in and they had a female medic who would have been, she didn't stay very long, but she would have been on mission with us. She would have been, you know, walking the line with the infantry. She would have been in the clinic with us dealing with Mascals and, um, you know, everything that we were dealing with. So like, where's, what's the difference? Where's the line drawn? Like, you don't have the specific MOS, you know, like she's going to be there. Like, let her train to be there. It just doesn't make sense to me. And then you have the other side of the, of, of the coin when it comes to our need for them. Like, I, I had different different patients who I wasn't able to treat because they were female and I was male. We had a, uh, a husband and wife come in after stepping on an ID. The wife stepped on the ID and it was a bilateral amputation. And the husband just caught some shrapnel to the stomach. And he refused to let us treat his wife. Yay. So we weren't even allowed to put tourniquets on. So she came in with with like cloth straps on her legs in a wheelbarrow. And he walked in, wouldn't let us treat her. And we had to direct our ANCOP, our Afghan police force, to drive her to Kandahar, which is a four-hour drive away. Now, do you think that patient made it? Yeah, of course. I don't know. And at the same time, like I had to evac him out, you know, based on his injuries. So it's a tricky thing uh, females in combat. You know, people want to say one thing about it, but it's there's definitely a need.
0: Yeah. And I, I think the people that say that they're... They shouldn't go, or that they, they don't belong. I don't know that always that their opinions would be changed a lot of the time, unless they worked directly with women in that role. Yeah. So I know there are definitely some women that have gone through Ranger School, and now they're getting integrated. and I hope they make a good impression for the rest of us.
1: <laughs> yeah, and you know, and that's one of the things too is like you, you're kind of looking at like what's what's allowed now, and how are those women performing, but. I mean, women have been there the entire time, like, look at their performance, you know, like, so like a good example was we had um, um a female cook who we had taught some like basic CLS stuff to, and she was already CLS certified, but.
0: Which is um, combat lifesaver.
1: Yes, correct. We had kind of taught her some um, advanced skills and it wasn't necessarily so she could go out and start treating the populace, but it was so that we could more effectively communicate Two female local nationals coming in through her, what was needed. And it's like the telephone game, you know, like I, I talk to the female um, soldier on ground. She talks to the interpreter who's a male and that's fine. And he talks to the female local national. So, you know, it's, it's, it's so convoluted, like, but it's, it's, it's a cultural, it's a cultural thing. It's something that they require. And, you know, they don't have any problem with the interpreter being male, but the person who they are interpreting must be female.
0: So. I think civilians, American civilians, don't understand that as a medical provider, you treat local nationals a lot. So explain that a little bit.
1: Okay. So we, it varies, and I, I can only speak to my experience. So my my unit, I, I was attached to an infantry battalion. They were a striker brigade combat team, but we were pretending to be light infantry. So we were in the Horn of Panjoui. We were at this um, little place called Talakan. Which I, you know, I challenge anybody to find on a map,
0: and that's Afghanistan.
1: A- Afghanistan, yes, in the Panjway district. So, you know, we we go there. We we I, I would say we have maybe three hundred and fifty soldiers on ground. We had our our infantry unit. So our company, we had a a contingent of ODA, which is special forces, and we had uh, another. Uh, national guard engineer unit who was on the cop and they they would rotate in and out sometimes there wouldn't be anybody there sometimes there would be um we were specifically responsible for our um infantry unit but we kind of saw everybody uh there was also some air force there we had uh air force eod and um there were canadians the bomb guys, the, the bomb guys yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is a different That's a it's a it's another story entirely later we we'll get into uh, the bomb guys and then we had uh, some Canadians for a while. We we took over for another US Army unit, but there was a strong Canadian presence when we got there. And then they And they are
0: been... actually integrated. They're their women can serve in combat.
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um their women can serve in combat and do regularly and, and do phenomenal do a phenomenal job. And we we would rely on their women who were there to, to handle the things that we needed to get done that we should have had our own females to do.
0: Getting shown up by Canada.
1: Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, and, you know, and they're all, and they do a lot of, Um, I, th- I think the unit that was there, the, the soldiers that were left over were, there were some, some security elements, but then there was um, PSYOPs, I think was the, the big thing that was kind of left over for, from the Canadians. You know, they would go out and, and, and a lot of their, a lot of their operations were with special forces and they had their own, their own ideas. We were ultimately fighting the coin fight, which was counterinsurgency, you know. Basically, going out into the population and doing whatever we could for them to make them not decide to, to be Taliban and fight us, essentially.
0: So as part of that, sometimes you would have to treat the local civilians, Afghan nationals. Was it only after they had been engaged in combat with the U.S. for, or, you know, friendly forces or was it you know, part of bombings or how would they become your patient?
1: Well- it varied, and our overall medical operations were a little fuzzy at the time. We initially went there with the idea that you know we would only be treating you know our our forces, but the need was there to to do more. And it, one of the funny things I noticed when I first got there, I was um I was the first medic on ground for my unit to do the handoff with the NCO who was kind of left over, and you know the way the life cycle goes is you know we come in with you know wanting to like heal the hearts and minds and and yeah. you know, do, the, do the job and, you know, and throw candy to the kids as we walk through the bazaar. And then the unit coming out has been through fighting season, has has kind of been through the thick of it and they're kind of just done. So they're a little bit jaded. So they didn't see a lot. They started off seeing a lot of locals and then they kind of cut it back. And then when we first got there, we weren't really sure what we were allowed to do. But we knew that we were doing the coin fight, so we would walk from Calais to Calais or village to village and do our key leader engagements, and then whatever medic was there was, you know, the medical package. And we would do a little village medicine, which was really kind of strange. But um, we would offer, you know, what we could as far as um, medicine was was concerned. You know, you'd see a lot of old injuries that people wanted you to to kind of wave a magic wand at and make better. That obviously you can't, but you sort of do what you can, or almost even make a show of it to to you know let them know that it, number one you care that you you want to do what you can, and then number two do actually what you can to make them feel a little bit more comfortable. One good example was we we would see um I remember I remember going to uh to one village and you know they they set up they started talking about what they're talking about and usually you know they would be discussing the crops in the area and and you know trying to get them from you know, talk them out of growing marijuana and poppy. <laughs> and uh, we, I would just kind of sit in the area and wait for people to come. And I would get kids who had like broken their arm and it was never like properly set. And they had like lost some kind of circulation and you can visually see on uh, the difference in, in yeah. coloration. But like at that point, what do you do? You know, when you, you start kind of talking to them, they, they're like, oh, I you know, I broke my arm two years ago and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. You're like, okay, well, what? What can I do for this kid? Well, I can't do anything to fix his problem, but he has like this splint setup that's like fiberglass insulation wrapped in like a 5K t-shirt that they're splinted with something. Like I can probably do something better with this. So you check their mobility, you run them through an exam and and do what you can for them. You know, is he in pain? Well, not anymore. Is he, he, did he lose mobility? Yes, he lost mobility. He uses the brace as support. Well, yeah, okay, we can do something better for that. So you, you give him something better for that. And you kind of just build that relationship just solely based on, you know, them gaining your trust for you actually, you know, kind of giving a damn. Yeah. So, you know, we, that being said, we, so we saw the local population, I keep getting sidetracked. I'm sorry. We saw the local population to that regard. So I would walk out into, and I can't say I, one of the biggest things that I, I try to push um, when I talk about uh, my time overseas is that like. Being a combat medic is a team sport. Like it's so right. much a team sport. There is no way that you can be the sole medic. I had done an interview for a book a while back and it was kind of edited to to make it sound like I was like the lone. Medical provider, like wandering Afghanistan. And that, <laughs>
0: with like 700 tourniquets, throwing them at everybody.
1: Essentially, like, yeah, like I had this like gigantic aid bag, and I was essentially Dr. Quinn, medicine yeah. woman. So that's not the case. Like, there's a PA there. He wasn't there initially. Uh, he got there eventually. Each platoon has a medic. Uh, one platoon had two medics. They actually had an outpost a little further away from the main outpost. And then we actually were assigned, thankfully, uh, two additional clinical medics who just kind of Hung out in the clinic. We had a, a treatment NCO co, and then a, just a, a, another specialist. So we were really plussed up with medical personnel, and we we were able to rotate our medics on patrols and stuff like that. I was with um, I was with third platoon when I deployed. I was actually the fourth platoon medic, but the medic who was scheduled to deploy was having a child, so he kind of hung back. Which you know, I which I gave him a lot of crap about. But now, actually having a child of my own, I just never yeah. I could never do <laughs> so. Yeah. So we, we were really plussed up on medics. So we had the personnel to run clinic, you know. So we did regularly. And it took a lot of time. We we first started out with having a small clinical package right uh, inside one of the gates, a rear gate, which was uh, we shared a south wall with the bazaar.
0: So you keep saying cop just for anyone that doesn't know you, Outpost.
1: Yeah, it's our Outpost. It's It's a company level Outpost. And like I said, we were a company that was there and we shared it with... A very small group of um, special forces guys and they sort of ran the wall so they would they would bring people to us you know special forces has a different configuration they have 18 deltas who are uh, paramedics yeah. Medics, yeah. yeah they're paramedic level but they're not always readily available because they have they carry more than one responsibility for the unit or for their team so you know we we would kind of set up in advance sort of who we would see and who they would see and we actually had to hire level care provider, we had, we had the PA. Mm -hmm. So any clinical concerns that came through to our cop, our outpost, we, um, we ran through our PA. So we actually had a pretty good setup where initially in that, that rear gate, we had this like a, a small clinical package, like a walk bag that we had kind of plussed up with, with clinical supplies just to do exams. And, you know, if we thought it was something that the, the provider would want to see. We try to talk them into coming into the cop and seeing the American doctor, you know. And that was kind of the biggest fight it was like the local population knew they needed medical care. Like that wasn't any question, but they were terrified. It was either, you know, be it the Taliban, the Taliban would find out that they were coming to the Americans for help. We would have women bring children who were terrified that their husbands were, would find out that they brought their children, you know, for help. And that was another big barrier that we we kind of encountered as well. But eventually you get to the point in your life cycle of deployment where they start to kind of trust you and they kind of get a feel for when the Taliban are watching and when they're not, when they can actually come to the cop and when they shouldn't. So we would see that. We would see like these big surges of people coming in to be seen like clinical cases like early in the morning and then after like dinner chow. It was always like before before breakfast chow, after dinner chow, we'd get something. And then initially when it came to um, trauma patients, they wouldn't bring them to us. If they brought them to us, it would be like very, very late in the injury. And essentially there's nothing we could do. And then eventually they started trusting us more and they would come uh, closer and closer to the point of injury. But
0: Was there a, a Afghan hospital, Afghan clinic at all in the villages or – anywhere near you guys
1: no the only the the closest afghan actual medical facility was in kandahar at least to my knowledge
0: and that's four hours away
1: that's four hours away
0: by car or
1: yeah, how yeah are by there? by by vehicle however you travel but by bird i i don't remember how far it was by bird exactly okay but there was a there was a pharmacist and you can't see me but i'm using air quotes there's a pharmacist. <laughs> in the bazaar who was somebody who just peddled meds essentially. And they're, you know, it's, they're Afghan meds. So it's meds that we were like, what the hell is this? You know? Yeah. And they they weren't trained in any way to use these meds. And one of the prime examples of this that I found when I was overseas, it was still pretty early in my deployment and we had, we were on a foot patrol and we were basically walking out to this area. They called the schoolhouse, which was this schoolhouse that they had built. It was this piece of land I think special forces had put it together. They, they they built a school for the locals that they wanted kids to go to, get an education. They thought education was kind of the way past what they were encountering with the Taliban. And yeah. the Taliban put out that if anybody went to that school, they would kill their families. So it just kind of became mm. uh, an Afghan police force checkpoint. But we call it the schoolhouse checkpoint. So we walked out to the schoolhouse checkpoint. We, our intention was this, to kind of stay overnight, kind of, you know, show show the, uh, the police force that we were, you know, there with them and whatnot. And while we were out there, there was a, a couple of guys making Nan in the dirt you know, mm-hmm. for us, like essentially like almost with their feet. It was an interesting display, <laughs> but, um, you know, their, their commander came up and they're like, Oh, doctor, which is, you know, that well, it's what they called the medics. Everyone was a doctor. If you knew anything about medicine, Yeah. he was telling me that he was having problems when he peed. And I was like, "Oh, great. Okay." It was like, "What's the problem?" He's like, "It's a very strange color." And I was like, "Well, could you describe the color? Do you, I mean, have you have you taken a sample? Can you describe the color?" And he was like, "Yes, it's very. Um, I think I can't remember. The I think he said vibrant. It's a very vibrant color." And I'm <laughs> like thinking, like, "Oh, that's such a strange way to describe it." And I was like, "Well, have you have you changed your diet? Have you taken anything new recently?" And he's like, "Yes, I just got pills. I don't remember what he was being treated for either.
0: Oh, he, was either. Like, hmm. like, he was
1: having back pain or something." something common, but nothing too crazy. He was, he was having some kind of pain and he went to the, to the pharmacist in the bazaar and he said he gave him pills and told him to take them three times a day and he would feel better. And I was like, well, do you know what they are? And he said, no, I don't. I was like, well, do you have them? Can I see them? He's like, sure, hold on. And he went away and he came back, you know, like 15 minutes later and he had this tube and I look at it and there's English on the tube. It's a lot of other writing, but there's English on the tube and they're one a day vitamins.
0: Oh, it's like B12 or something?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a yeah. multivitamin. so one-a-day vitamin that he's taken three times a day for yeah. Lord knows how long since he's had oh these. And he's yeah. noticed that his, his urine is vibrant. So, I mean, easy fix, obviously, but like that's, that's the sort yeah. of thing is like they go to the pharmacist for a problem. He kind of gives them whatever the hell he has on hand and tells them that's what's going to fix and it.
0: Kidney failure.
1: Yeah, and then, you know, so. <laughs> no real medical facility to speak of. We would occasionally find drugs that were like like Tylenol and stuff like that, I, I never would know what people actually had it for. Talking to the local national population about their clinical needs is always a little bit tricky.
0: Yeah, I can imagine.
1: Just because of how they kind of how they identify symptoms and whatnot. They always like use hand, hand signals that don't always make sense. We'd always have the joke where they would like get their hand and make kind of like a pulsating hand motion on their arm. And it would we would think it was supposed to be to signify pain, but it was really like them pointing to their arm. And I'd be like, oh, it's your arm in pain. he's like, no, I have a thing here. Oh. you know, always the way that they sort of describe their symptoms weren't like totally consistent, I guess.
0: Yeah. You think that certain things translate culturally, but they really don't. No. So you were in, you've been interviewed a lot about your deployment. You had some pretty notable things happen. Do you want to talk about any of those?
1: Yeah, we can we can talk about a few of those. I usually I'm usually pretty open about things that have happened over there just because I do think they're clinically interesting and they're not especially like being sort of into civilian medicine even though I don't I don't work clinically anymore. They're just not things that I have noticed people kind of experience. And and even being a military medic dealing with that situation is totally different than how it would be dealt with here.
0: Why don't you tell people what you do a little bit in the civilian world to right. start off, I guess?
1: Sure. So I, I work in a, a pediatric hospital, and I started off when I got out of the, off of active duty. I started going to school here in Boston, and I took a CA position, a clinical assistant, which is essentially like a nursing assistant position. Mm-hmm. And I was working in cardiology, and it was fascinating. I, like, I love cardiology.
0: Especially pediatric cardiology.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, I had done ACLS and I was an ACLS instructor before that, but like the whole...
0: I renewed mine today.
1: <laughs> oh, oh, nice.
0: <laughs>
1: well, congratulations.
0: that's terrible.
1: But like even even having done that, like the things that you encounter in pediatric cardiology in like a top hospital are like kind of insane. You, d- you just don't expect that to be a thing. And they were completely different experiences than what I experienced overseas. And yeah, I would find that nursing would be like very interested in what I had experienced there. And then I was very interested in what they were experiencing here, you know?
0: Yeah. You get a lot of like trauma and like a traumatic arrest or an adult who has had like way too many cheeseburgers and they have a cardiac arrest because of that. And they need, yeah. you know, stents, but kids, you get things like tetralogy of flow and mm-hmm. patent ductus arteriosus and yeah. all these congenital things that you never see. Actually a couple of weeks ago, I had a patient come in who was in her fifties and she goes, Oh, I had a patent ductus arteriosus for PDA, which is like a, it's a hole in your heart. And they found it two years ago. And I was like, <laughs> what? How did, how are you walking around with that? She's like, I don't know. She was from India. And yeah, my mind was blown. I thought it was very cool. She didn't
1: think that. (laughs) She did not. She did not find it cool. Anyways. It's it's very interesting, though. And you're right, because a lot of that stuff is found, you know, even when it's found late, it's like when they're teenagers playing sports, you know, like things kind of come out when they start being a little more active. So that that is pretty insane. But you're right, like that, there's a lot of crazy cardiology stuff that you encounter that you don't. It's just stuff that you don't see in the population that you're exposed to in the military. Even when you're you're not you're working in garrison, you're still we're still functioning, you know, medically. We're still operating clinics and, you know, doing sick call and then seeing patients, but it's a generally healthy population. You know, if you have anything, you might have like a murmur, you know, like an undiagnosed murmur. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's it's nothing too crazy. So then to come into the civilian side and, and see all this stuff, it's pretty it's pretty crazy.
0: I was talking about that with Angela, who was in one of the earlier episodes. She's a medic in the reserves, too. And, you know, obviously the reserves get shit on a lot. Yeah, naturally. You know, and for the most part, rightfully so. But when it comes to the medical providers, when you have a medical reserve unit, if the medical providers are working in the civilian world actively in their job, it's a little bit different because you see so many really, really sick people that you wouldn't necessarily see in a healthy population of soldiers in their family. So there's some benefit to that having reserve soldiers for those jobs.
1: Yeah, I think I think there's a tremendous benefit, and you know I definitely have have seen that over, over my career in the military, which kind of gets to uh, like launches me into a different little story. But sure. I had a few different. I never answered your last question. And, and That's
0: okay.
1: <laughs> I promise we'll get back to it. I had a few PAs when I was overseas. So when I first came to my unit, I got there in October, and we deployed April. I think the beginning of April, end of March, beginning of April, something like that. So this PA was an E six or E seven, and then did the IPAT program. So he did the Army PA program. Yeah. And then he was a PA. So his his experience had been pretty much military. You know, we deployed and we had a mass event that a secondary IED was initiated after the medical package was on ground to respond, and our PA went down. Yeah. He he was okay ultimately. Uh, he it was mostly okay. MTBI. And he did have a kind of a rough road forward from there, but, you know, he, he survived and he's, he's doing well now. Yeah. But, you know, we had a new PA on ground by the end of the day. You know, we evac 16 people in the field that day, you know, came home, changed out of our uniform, put on PTs, came back to the clinic and started running MACE exams to people who weren't uh, sent out.
0: Which is the concussion exam.
1: Yes. Um, and I, I wish I could tell you what it stood for now. I don't remember
0: military acute concussion exam
1: sure let's go with that That sounds perfect
0: i don't yeah. know but that was creative if that's not <laughs> correct
1: <laughs> like i have a computer in front of me i could probably google this first um yeah so we're like we're, we're running all these mace exams to the these other uh soldiers who are on ground and a few of them needed to be to send out too but while we're doing this another pa walks in and we're like hey who are you and he's like oh you know i'm i'm so-and-so i'm your new pa and i'm we're like are you kidding me like we just sent our old PA away like a couple of hours ago. And kind of the point I'm getting at was that our old PA was very much military, military focused. Right, he did a lot of clinical things in garrison as far as you know our sick calls were concerned. Uh, he, he was a phenomenal educator as well. He pretty much would let he trusted his NCOs to do the training that their soldiers needed to get into that clinic to run the exams, to sort of guess at a diagnosis and, and uh, a treatment and then sort of let them present to the PA. And he'd be like, yes or no. Or mm-hmm. he gave us a lot of a lot of uh, leeway, you know, like we, we could do a lot under him. And it was phenomenal. It was a great learning experience. And he would correct us when we were wrong and he would teach classes in between. He was great. My experience with him, though, again, my experience with him started in October and we deployed in, in March or April. So my experience was solely based on training up for trauma. You know, we did a lot of that. We mm. talked about, you know, hypothetical traumas and and that sort of thing. H- ideas that he had that we would probably encounter during deployment. He had deployed previous. So now this new PA who was on ground was uh, was you know from the hospital. He I, I don't I'm not entirely sure what his position was before that, but he was very very clinical and not very trauma oriented and he knew it and he was very open about it. And he was, he was like, you know, I'm looking forward to learning from you guys and this, this, that, and the other thing. And we, we had a few um, trauma events where the differences became very apparent and he saw the differences and he eventually was like, Hey, I'm going to take a backseat on these traumas and I'm just going to be one of you guys. So our senior line of medic kind of took the lead of the table and started, you know, doing his thing. And then actually having the PA get down and sort of get that experience that like, You know the 68 whiskeys. The medics were doing like learning how to control bleeds and kind of understanding, you know, the algorithm that we were running. So that was great.
0: Yeah, it's it's very different than like being a provider myself. You don't learn trauma management like you do in 68 whiskey school. And if you haven't had that experience as a provider, you're going to be in over your head. I mean, you can obviously learn it. You're very educated. Mm -hmm. You can pick it up, but. If you specialize in trauma, like the whiskeys do, then you, you know, if you don't specialize in it, you know, you need to learn, and it's it's, yeah. it's hard. It's it's a very different animal than doing physicals and or doing a cardiology workup or, or something else.
1: Yeah, you know, and, and there's something to be said about like working in a hospital on a base, and then deploying to Afghanistan. And now you're, you're essentially in like a wooden shack performing medicine, you know, and trying to manage a trauma and it, you know, you don't have to worry about the same things necessarily. And one of the the big kudos I always give to this provider is that he was, he had the self-awareness to be like, all right, I need to change the way I do things. And these guys can help me do that. So he was, again, he was really very much about like, I'm just, I'm just another set of hands. Tell me what to do. And he learned that way. And he was, he was a phenomenal provider and we had so much respect for him. But one of the great things about those differences between having a a clinician come in and kind of take the reins and not have that trauma experience is that we had all this great clinical knowledge at our disposal. When it came to the other side of our job, having local national come in or having mm-hmm. Joe's come in with back pain and, you know, yeah. all, all this, all these different things that would happen, um, learning how to write notes, write better notes or having our assessments inform our notes and memorizing notes, help you in, inform your assessment and, and that sort of thing. So there, there was a really great kind of juxtaposition between the two different types of providers, which was kind of interesting. And I, I always sort of like kind of cherish that experience having these two different people.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I think everyone should spend time pre-hospitally maybe not in a war zone. Although if you want to, I think that's cool too. I would love to do it. But (laughs) you should go pre-hospitally because it's kind of like the wild west. And then you should also spend time clinically you know, in a hospital. You really need to understand how medicine is practiced on both sides to be able to adapt because sometimes things go to hell in the clinic too. And you need to adapt. And then sometimes pre-hospitally things are very complicated and medical and you need a lot of that cerebral processing of it
1: too so. yeah and i think it kind of goes for like some of the judging as well you know you you get a patient into your onto your table you know even even in the war zone you had like a, a whiskey out you know out in the field and they like messed up a an io mm-hmm. you know and you're like oh this isn't actually this isn't actually giving the patient any fluids like you learn not to judge because you realize you were also probably dodging enemy fire at the time and
0: yeah that's a pretty good excuse
1: <laughs> yeah you know, I, I think so you know you still yeah. you should still get your iOS you know if you're if you're going for it you should still make sure you're yeah it's it's in but you know the, things happen different different things happen so kind of getting back to uh your previous question about some of the other things that kind of came up there are a few things that were kind of like the the um the bigger notes in my brain of things that had happened as far as traumas were concerned. And I think one of the funny things I kind of take away not funny haha obviously is that a lot of the a lot of the local national traumas kind of blur they kind of blend together with a few- ex- exceptions not because they're local national but because they were so similar sure you know we had a lot of once fighting season kind of picked up you know you take a lot of enemy fire but it's all you know it's all outside of like eight hundred meters it's it's nothing you're super concerned about with a few exceptions but a lot of it has to do with either covering or or you know protecting themselves against us reacting reacting to them and placing ieds so there's a lot of ieds improvised explosive devices that they put in the area mm-hmm. and we had certain uh, measures to sort of detect these things the first measure was a valon, which is a type of mine detector slash metal detector that somebody carries in a foot patrol Mm -hmm. and that you you know you sweep like you're looking for for coins on the beach but you're looking for a metal signature and you know when you find something you kind of prod at it and see what you find and see if you can find a plate or whatever so we had a lot of that going on in the area the other measure we had was a blimp that had a a very expensive camera attached to it that could see in the 360 and zoom in and zoom out and have different camera filters and stuff on it it's called the pgis and uh, that had civilian contractors at it 24-7. And their only job was to watch these screens and look for people in placing or initiating IDs. So that kind of leads me to my first my first story, which is one of the only things I can actually find on the internet nowadays. But there's this PGIS footage that I've run across of, you know, they're, they're sweeping the area looking for people initiating IDs or implanting IDs. And they come across... Uh, and this this young child like maybe maybe six seven mm-hmm. something to like that effect and uh, he's walking across the like a very low bridge or short bridge i should say and he at the very end of the bridge he kind of stops kind of looks both ways and then kind of darts off to the side of the bridge kind of over to like where the wadi would go underneath it at this point in time you know what all the wadis are dried up it's all the river beds are dried up so everything is just dirt so he kind of goes off to the side of the wadi and you kind of watch him come back over and sort of, like, jab his foot in the ground. And you're like, well, what the hell is this yeah. kid doing, That's you weird. know? And then he goes off to the side again a little bit. And he comes back over, and he sort of jabs his foot in the ground again. And you're like, what the hell is this kid up to? So at this point, you know, the guys – So an, an, another little bit of the story is that the civilians who watch this Pegis are in a connex, essentially, directly across from the aid station.
0: They're on post.
1: They're on, Yeah, they're, on, they're in our cop you open your doors and you walk out the front of the aid station. And then the connects for the civilians is a little bit off to the right. So they used to come over all the time whenever anything kind of interesting was happening on the PGA screen. So they were like, Hey doc, come check this out. So a bunch of us went over there. and We were like watching this kid. And he's like, this kid has been doing this for like 10 minutes. So Mm -hmm. he'd do something, he'd step on it, you know, he'd run back. So then we're watching him do this and he walks over to the center of the bridge and just jumps He, like, does a full-on jump stomp and initiates an ID. Oh, my God. Yeah, so we come to find out that this kid had been paid by the Taliban to initiate an already implanted ID. He just walks over, takes this 9-volt battery, puts it in place, and then the kid, being a kid, was like, oh, I wonder wonder if I can play with this thing. Or he went and he Mm -hmm. started, you know, trying to initiate it but not hurt himself. Yeah. And he ended up coming into our aid station. So um, they brought him in. We knew he was coming, you know, once it had happened, we had sent the word up to the talk or the, you know, command to command and they sent word out The, the locals picked him up and brought him in essentially. So he came to the aid station and, you know, we, we treated him and he was just like a lot of the other local nationals who we see who step on IDs. They are triple amputation. You know, they always have a relatively clean amputation on one leg a pretty mangled amputation on the other based on whatever foot they stepped on initially. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times we saw like a femur, one, one femur like spiking out sort of. And then we would see one of the two arms, like usually their dominant arm would be would be pretty mangled or missing. So he, he was one of these cases. And a, a huge thing I took from training was that when we were training and we had this type of a patient, they were always unresponsive. And I don't know that I ever had an unresponsive triple, triple amputation in Afghanistan. You know, they were always very responsive, usually not responding the way you would expect a triple amputation to respond and like very talkative. And you could usually gauge kind of how things were going based on how they were talking.
0: Sure. How high up were his amputations?
1: I, I would say probably, well, so he would have one uh, one below the knee.
0: And was that the one he stepped on the IED with?
1: I don't know, because he sort of did like a jump. like He did like a jumping stomp. So I couldn't, like couldn't really would. tell you how. Yeah, like like a kid would. I couldn't really tell you how he hit the actual plate or right. where the ID was in place from there. But then he would have an above the knee on the other. And then I don't really recall his where his arm was.
0: Did it seem like they kind of cauterized? Was that why they would be conscious as opposed to just hemorrhaging?
1: No, a lot of times what we would see is that, you know, like vasculature, like, like retracts sure. in an attempt to to compensate for blood loss.
0: Yeah. So your your a, body is the black hawk down thing. Yeah. yeah.
1: So like your body is essentially trying to like close the container on its own, and then we call that comp compensation. And then yeah, shunting. And then you know when they you know it's kind of spiral, they lose the ability, and that's when they decompensate. So
0: and kids can compensate so well until they can't.
1: Yeah, that's a big thing with kids is that they compensate like champs, but they when they stop when they start decompensating, it happens quick. And he was one that he came to us very quickly. He was still very lucid and we were able to get tourniquets on quick and eat that quick. And he was even telling us that he was out picking berries with his mother, which, you know, it's well like, you no, know, we, we saw you, like we watched you jump in that ID, like we know yeah. what you were up to. Like, there's no need to lie. Like, we're still going to treat you. We're still going to send you away. Right. He was like, no, no, I was with my mother. We were picking berries. And he was very adamant about it. He was picking berries with his mother, you know, and that's, and then he stepped in on ID. And that's kind of this kind of always what we saw. Like there's always people came in and we, people when people came in and they stepped in IDs. We didn't always have like a great like view on the pages of what had happened or really even before the pages came there. We had like riot cams up in the corners and we can kind of see some distance. We wouldn't ever actually know what the real story was. This was just an a case that we did know what actually had happened. So it was always kind of the same It's like people would come in. They would tell us that they were, you know innocently walking down a road and they right. stepped on an ID or, or something. And it was always very similar, the injuries. Like, I think one reason why this kid sticks out to me is because he was, you know, he was much younger. And then we actually like watched it. We actually kind of saw it happen.
0: Wow. Did you guys have pediatric equipment with you?
1: not initially uh we eventually we got a Braslow back but i mean there's a there's a lot of uh leading up to that as well like we got there and we had this this wooden shack that they called an aid station and you know and not to not to not be grateful for our wooden shack because the unit, the unit before us got there and it was just a marijuana field and they kind of you know put up hesco barriers and dug all the marijuana out most of the marijuana out i should say and um <laughs> And, you know, they they created this from nothing. And then the one thing they did was they built a shack. So our aid station was kind of in the back of the motor pool. And as I said earlier, we were a striker brigade that was pretending to be light infantry for a while. So we had a lot of strikers, which are armored, eight-wheeled vehicles, Mm -hmm. sort of just parked there. And then we had our aid station in the back. And for a little while, they they were going to make our call sign ratchet. But I was like, hey, that might be confusing for people because we're in the back of the aid station. So they might come for us to like, you know, change their oil and stuff. <laughs> so it was, you know, built on nothing. So we didn't have a lot. You know, we, we had what we brought. We had a few cases that got sent there. And then when our PA got there, he had brought some cases. But our resupply was very slow. We always sent up requests. And it was kind of one of the sort of funny, not funny moments when we actually started that big 16-man mascal. Like that happened. And I think that was a sort of a jarring thing for our command because they were like, oh my gosh, these guys actually need some resources. Yeah. And we had sent up like several requests for resources. And the thing that really pissed us off was that, you know, we needed four by four gauze. You know, so we used to send up on every request four by four gauze, and then we got this gigantic dump of rec- like medical supplies that we had requested, and it was literally all four by four gauze. <laughs> like they they went through every request we ever made and only pulled out four by four gauze, and then sent us every last bit of four by four gauze. <laughs> we're like, well, no, they were re- oh, okay. So we had tons of four by four, but like we didn't have like you know basic medical supplies, antibiotics and stuff. But we got very plussed up when they start to see, kind of see where like our needs were, like how combat heavy our region was. We got very plussed up. We actually built our own pharmacy room uh, that we could lock. And we actually had like a pretty good supply that we could choose from when actually treating both like our soldiers and local nationals. So.
0: Wow. Because in the civilian world, you never think about, oh, I need these supplies and I can't have them. Yeah. I mean, in EMS, you kind of did like, oh, what was on the track, but- For the most part, you have four by fours.
1: Yeah. And and uh, another thing with like civilian medicine is you don't think of it in terms of like triage necessarily. Like you start trying to triage patients based on like your personnel, but also like, what do you actually have in your, in your aid station that you can actually make a difference with? Right. So that comes into play a lot. And, you know, as your deployment progresses, like that changes your triaging ability definitely changes. So you definitely make different decisions based on what you have available to you.
0: Yeah, when when I was in whiskey school, they always did the Mascals, you know, games and stuff. And they're always like, well, someone may be expectant and, you know, we're about to pass away based on your resources. Sure, if you had a fully staffed Boston hospital, they would make it. But oh, yeah, totally. depending on where you are, they may not. So,
1: yeah. And and uh, the other thing in training was like, we never do CPR in the field. <laughs> like no we do we actually quite the opposite we actually had a rule that nobody dies in the aid station if they're going to die they're going to die in the bird so we did lots and lots of cpr in our aid station and you know like having deployed and then coming back to uh coming back to garrison and actually having kind of focused on more courses done acls and pals and bls i had a lot of those like i wish i knew this back then moments you know like things i would have done differently things i would have requested differently i don't know it's just you, you kind of like kind of look at the different the different points or the different um patients that you had and kind of what you did for that patient and then you're like oh you know what I could have done in this case now that I know something a little better I could have done this maybe I could have dropped this chest yeah. tube and we like we had a, a like a hell of a time with this uh this this pair of brothers who were in our bazaar who got into a fight and this is this is the story by the way I don't know if this is actually true but th- what the story was the two brothers came in one was unresponsive. Both were stabbed. And the guy who could talk said that they got into a fight with a Taliban, some random Taliban, and he had stabbed them both. Mm-hmm. It was like a property dispute. He had stabbed them both and ran away. Okay. So one brother is unresponsive. The other brother, I, I, I'm trying to remember. I think like he had had some like posterior stab wounds. Like I think it like hit his shoulder blade. Like There was nothing too bad. I think we had occlusive dress, addressed it occlusively. And then... I don't think he had any like respiratory distress or anything like that. He was generally kind of okay. Mm -hmm. His brother, on the other hand, uh, had a hemothorax and we were like losing him. He was, you know, he was, he was in an arrest and we were doing CPR. And like the more we were doing CPR, the harder and harder it was to do CPR. And we were all like, yeah, we're like, what do we do? Like we're essentially in a wooden box in like the dirtiest place on earth with no way we have no suction. We, you know, what do we do? How do we keep this guy yeah. alive? And it was basically like, do CPR as best we can until the bird picks this guy up and hope that they have more supplies than we do. You know, what else do you do? Do you just say, you know, this guy's done. He's an Afghan. Let's not worry about him. Like,
0: right. no, you How do what you, you do. What how you do you sleep do. at night with that? Exactly. Exactly. And you had nothing for a chest tube?
1: No, we could. So we could put a chest tube in. We we were right. able to do that, but we had no no way to control output. And so we had no we had no suction and then the other concern we had was like well if he's bleeding internally and we put a chest tube in you know
0: he's just gonna exactly it.
1: so like that that back pressure is probably doing at least something to stop his bleeding so if we can yeah, keep doing enough. cp if we can keep doing cpr then maybe we can get him someplace that they can actually do something for him and i i can't imagine that he lived but
0: at least you tried
1: yeah and that's all you can do and i think that's kind of like the moral of the story when you're in Afghanistan. I
0: think that's the moral of the story. And a lot of times in emergency medicine, is, well, that's good. <laughs> yeah, like, you you just try until you can't anymore. So what was the story? The, the question I initially asked <laughs> was, what was the story that prompted you to have books written about? It's oh, okay. Sorry. At Dr. Quinn.
1: So it's actually like a patient who they wrote about was like my very first patient in the field when I was a PFC. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I did anything wrong necessarily, but I was definitely like, you know, shocked. And trying to figure stuff out like a couple of things eluded me back then like the venus oozing because you know when you're trying to stop bleeding like you're going to get some oozing
0: i would not want anyone to be writing about my (laughs) early patients
1: yeah it's just there's like there's a learning curve right
0: there's yeah there's a big learning curve
1: so there was uh, this was in may so this was a few months after we had deployed so this actually we must have left in april my birthday is in may (laughs) early may so i spent my 30th birthday like I said, I was older when I joined. I spent my 30th birthday on patrol in Afghanistan, like nearly passing out. Like it was horrible. It was like 130 degrees. You could like feel the heat coming off the ground. Shortly after that, we started fighting season. Fighting season started pretty early for us. We started getting sort of the lighter attacks a little bit earlier. And you, you saw them react to us as well. Like when we started doing something differently, they would start doing something differently. When we decided we were going to drive trucks around, they, you know, started uh, increasing the amount of HME that was in their IEDs so homemade explosives that were in their IEDs so Mm -hmm. we started seeing these larger bombs doing you know more damage to our troops but way more damage to our vehicles as well Mm -hmm. so this one one thing that was written about was my first patient it was a day after my first contact we're like at this very large element moving through like the essentially the worst part of our AO of our area of operation
0: and contact is when you receive fire. Yeah.
1: So we receive fire and you know, everybody everybody fired back, even those of us who didn't know where the fire was coming from. You know, we, they would call it out and we just everyone kinda of shot in the same direction. <laughs> it was so far out. That's that's the thing it was so far away. I remember thinking, like, War well, what are we aiming at? Like, I know this coming from over here, but like are we aiming at something in particular? Yeah. The very next day we had a mission that so there's two bazaars. There was a bazaar that was right outside our our cop, our, our outpost. And then there, there was another bazaar that they called the Taliban Bazaar. I don't know why they called it that. I just assumed it was because it was dangerous or something. So we had traveled to another uh, another outpost, which was being manned by just a platoon, that platoon that had the two medics. We stopped there. We picked up an EOD contingency, and we sort of went went on our way. And the idea was that we were... Supposed to find a weapons catch. So, you know, we dismounted, we walked very slowly because we had the, this EOD team with us. They were very thorough. They were like just hell bent on keeping us safe, which I definitely appreciate every single time it happened. Yeah. EOD was phenomenal overseas. It always came when we called them, no matter what time of day, no matter how many times we called them. And they always did a very thorough job. And I love those people. That being said, they stepped on a lot of IDs, yeah. unfortunately. So, this was the first time I had encountered that. We had moved to this bazaar. There's something called an ICOM, which I don't know what that stands for exactly. Insurgency communications. I don't know. One of the interpreters would hold a, a radio. and We would get ICOM chatter. So the enemy didn't have any sort of encoding on their communications. Mm-hmm. We could openly listen to them and we'd have it. one of the interpreters just listen in and kind of hear what they're saying. So they're planning some sort of an attack on us while we were walking. We heard this. So we were expecting it the entire way. We came up to this, this bizarre bazaar. Or we were expecting a bazaar, but it was completely empty. There was nobody there. It was a ghost town. Yeah,
0: it's a bad sign.
1: Yeah. So walking up to it, we're like, "Well, this is not good." So we ended up just kind of coming off the main road and walking around it because we thought that was probably a good idea. Now you're essentially walking into a kill box. So we walked up and around. We got to the other side of the bazaar, which is where the well, weapons cache was supposed to be. And uh, you know, we set up our set up our security area, and I kind of plopped down next to our platoon leader. We had some guys up on the road that were a little bit west of us, but there was like a main road that kind of cut through where we were. So we had a guy coming up on a motorcycle. Everybody, everybody overseas seems to have like a cell phone and a moped. <laughs> a guy was coming up on his moped and, you know, our security element stopped him, started talking to him. EOD was doing their thing and there's suddenly this big blast. And then we hear gunfire. I don't know. You know, I don't know what's coming from what direction at this point in time. And I just start hearing medic, you know. So I grab my bag, Mm -hmm. throw it on my back, and I start hauling ass over to where I see kind of a big puff of of smoke. And you start just kind of running, and you don't really know where you're going. You're just kind of looking for people to direct you. And there were were, um, NCOs kind of pointing my way along the way. And I just kept running until I found this guy sitting in a blast crater, this EOD team leader.
0: And you were the only medic there, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So for every platoon, every platoon element, there is typically one medic. They would do like, we'd have uh, three days on, three days off, three days guard duty. So I would be on patrol for three days. And then I would be in the clinic for six. That's kind of how it worked for medics. Mm So I'm the only medic there. Now we have trained some of these 11 Bravos, these infantrymen to be combat lifesavers or to be, everyone has a skill to be a combat lifesaver, but the guys who kind of showed a propensity for uh, medicine, we kind of picked out to be these advanced combat lifesavers. So I had a, a guy there who I think was a private or a PFC or something. So he was there with me. So it was, it was he and I, this guy's team, the other EOD guys had put some tourniquets on that weren't, that weren't effective. So when I first came on the scene, they were still trying to kind of lash down these tourniquets. So I, you know, I started applying femoral pressure instantly. So you see this guy, he has, he has an amputation, blow the knee, and then he has some kind of trauma to his other leg. I'm, I'm thinking it was left leg amputation. Oh, actually, no, it was left leg, seemingly partial amputation, uh, right leg trauma. I wasn't really sure at the time. And then he had, he had just had a little bit of trauma to his hand, nothing too bad, but Mm -hmm. it was, I just remember seeing blood. So I was holding, I was holding pressure on uh, his femoral artery for his left leg while they were putting uh, tourniquets on. And that kind of gave me a minute to kind of think about what was going on. Again, it was my first trauma ever. I'd only ever done this hypothetically with mannequins and stuff.
0: Yeah, there's a lot going through your mind and. Your yeah, mind.
1: you you are scared out of your mind. You know, you were just like.
0: Not to mention you're being shot at.
1: So here's the thing: is that we weren't being shot at. Oh, I, I don't know. I don't know about the gunfire. Oh. You know, we. I remember hearing it and and running and thinking like, oh shit, here we go. Yeah. But that's the only memory I have of gunfire. I don't know who engaged who. I don't know if somebody saw us like reacted to the to the blast and like shot some rounds off from like the distance i don't i don't really know what it was it wasn't any of our guys which is kind of strange you would think that's that's would be the most likely scenario yeah we have gone through it with a couple of guys before We're like we have no idea i thought initially that guy in the moped was a v-bed and a vehicle born mm-hmm. explosive device and there was some sort of a Complex attack involved. That was not the case. So well, by the time I had gotten to this guy, his his team had some tourniquets on. They weren't effective. Um, I was holding pressure. I switched to just swapping out tourniquets, and that was my big thing. There's you know the soft T tourniquet, the, yeah. the sort of newer cool tourniquets. I was like all excited about. I had like a ton of them on my kit. These guys had a ton of them on their kits. They were throwing these soft T's on, and I could not get them to stop the bleeding and save my life. And then I swapped everything out for, for cats for the combat ap- application tourniquet.
0: Oh, so you had both of them all- with you?
1: Yeah. So I had so I had a different setup. I had a I had a drop leg um, that had all of my tourniquets in it. And then I had my aid bag on my back. So I had all these soft tees in my drop leg. And then I had a bunch of other stuff in my aid bag. So I pulled out my aid bag and I just started putting on these other tourniquets because they worked better. And I had set my kit up that way because I just had never used anything. So I didn't know really what was effective and what wasn't. Yeah. So in this case, after this event, I had taken all the softies like away from anywhere I could find if I found one, I would just replace it with a cat. Even other people's aid. Like I'm just like, we're getting rid of all this shit.
0: I've never actually used soft softie, but I have used cats and they do work. Really
1: well they do work and they, yeah they're like they're one time and you if you move any tourniquet you're gonna have to check it and you're, you may have to to replace it but they work and, and you
0: can adjust them really well yeah
1: like that's what that's why they're the staple they've been a the staple and you would think that soft tees would work better I, I i just don't think they have the elasticity that cats do i don't know i don't know exactly the reason why they don't seem to work as well maybe it's just user error but they didn't work in this case So I had reapplied all these tourniquets. We stopped the bleeding. Finally, we found out that his his lower leg was really just skin. So we were trying to hide it from his view. But this is another case of a trauma patient who was completely lucid at the time. Like this. uh, He was a staff sergeant. He was in the Air Force, uh, Air Force EOD. He um, was all business. He was like, no metal signature. Watch where you're stepping. No metal signature. And then we come to find out while we're doing this. And it's not even like a find out moment. It should have just assumed this while we were running towards it, that we just ran into like an uncleared minefield weapons cache. Like this was the first area he walked into. So like, we don't know, we don't know what's what essentially. Yeah. I know I came from behind me. I don't know where the birds going to get called to. Hopefully we're going to be good. Right. And this, this was the guy with the Valen, you know?
0: Yeah. This was the bomb guy.
1: So 11 Bravos have Valens as well, but his big thing was there was no metal signature. He did not have a metal signature on the thing that he stepped on, which meant it was a more complex IED, Mm -hmm. which kind of meant they're like, Hey, you're all in danger. So he was all business from the start, from the minute we got there, this guy, you know, missing half of one leg, the other leg's all messed up.
0: So he's still giving these directions after the injury.
1: Yeah. After the injury, he's still like trying to make sure nobody else steps on an IED. He's, He's like a Badass. Completely stand-up guy. Yeah, he is. He is a badass. He's still a badass, by the way. That's how the story ends. He's still a badass.
0: Good. That's a good ending.
1: <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> so, um, but you can kind of tell. You can kind of gauge uh, how he's doing, even his pain, based on you know how how he's talking. He, he went from like, you know, no metal signature. Watch where you're stepping. This that, and the other thing. Very, very on business, and then slowly. And this, another part of the story is the amount of time that had passed slowly as time passes, he starts talking about his wife and kids, you know, then it's like, Hey, if I don't make it, tell him this, just tell my wife that I love her, tell this, and the other thing. And so you can kind of gauge based on that dialogue that, Hey, you know, he's starting to feel pain. He's not doing well.
0: And I'm sure that adrenaline is coming down that initial adornment rush from
1: that. Yeah, totally. So, um, and we have morphine on board and the same thing we have an IV initiated and we're doing what we can do. Like I said, like it's all you can do you know, we had stopped the bleeding. And that's that point I had made earlier, like, I didn't understand the idea that, hey, you stop arterial bleeding, but you're going to get venous oozing. So you're seeing blood come still, slowly, but it's still coming. And you're like, hey, I'm not, I haven't stopped this bleed yet. you right. know. And that's one of those things that you don't talk about in training, only kind of experience kind of shows you that. And it makes sense. But at the time, you're like, well, what the hell? And uh, it did dawn on me while I was doing it, that that's actually what we had encountered here, that I should stop dicking around with these tourniquets. But At the same time, it's on your mind.
0: Well, you also feel like you need to be busy and doing something, you know, I should be doing more when you're in kind of that trauma situation too. And,
1: and, you know, we have that, these statistics in our head that they talk about, like that's, you know, massive extremity hemorrhage is the number one thing that preventable injury. Yeah.
0: 70% of them can be saved. They like beat it into your head in the course. And
1: yeah. So I'm like, I need to stop this extremity hemorrhage. I have to. And, you know, and it was stopped. And the more complex thing was the other, the other leg. You know, as you expose it, you see some peppering. uh, You see a lot of trauma. I'm I'm like, whoa, what's going on here? He had a spiral fracture is actually what happened. So… The
0: femur or or? tib-fib or…
1: Tib-fib. Tib-fib. Actually, I don't… I don't know entirely how high up it went. I'm pretty sure… I'm pretty sure it's tib-fib. Pretty sure it's just tib-fib. I'm trying to think. Because I splinted… I splinted above the knee, but I think it was just as precaution. So, you know, you, you have a tourniquet on it in to stop the bleed. And then I, you know, you Sam splint it. You know, you you do that. I cleaned his hand as well. I don't remember. I don't even remember his injury to his hand. And that's the funny thing. When I when I did the interview for this book, the guy who had, had written it, Brian, was like, yeah. So what was going on with his hand? And I was like, I don't recall. I don't remember his hand being injured at all. Did I treat his hand? He's like, well, I think so, because it had been bandaged and there was a lot of sand in it. I was like, oh, so I guess that must have happened when I was on the ground but I don't remember there's just so many traumas yeah but I mean his always stuck out to me because it was my first yeah of course so you know we we had splinted that leg we had a tourniquet on it to stop the bleeding the other leg was tourniqueted we you know had kind of packed up the the remaining appendage it was still attached but we didn't really want him to see it too much so we kind of hid it from his view
0: right
1: he had an IV and he had morphine on board
0: did you guys have ketamine at this time
1: no and ketamine wasn't very widely used when I was overseas as like normal practice, but we used it based on my PA and our senior line medics experience. So we did have it eventually, we got it eventually, and we had used it for trauma patients, but not at this point. This was the first one that we had encountered
0: this was like 2011, 2012. Is that right? Yeah. And I think that's when ketamine started to get on the scene because now it's super popular. It's great.
1: Yeah. We had a lot, a lot of conversations for like, does it have the same analgesic effect as morphine? And well, yes, studies show it does. And, you know, is it better for pediatric populations? Because we were seeing different applications for that as well. So it was something that had kind of been working into our repertoire.
0: Doesn't have the same cardiovascular effects, which is great for those traumas.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't see, see as much respiratory depression and that sort of thing, right. which would have been great to had known before I got there. But again, you kind of adjust fire as you learn stuff and whatnot. So we we were using it, but we had started using it the first time I actually remember it coming out was for like a really really bad chiburn on a on a younger patient, mm. but not not for like regular trauma. My senior line medic had it. Our treatment NCO had it. I didn't have it in my aid bag because it was it just wasn't part of our loadout. Yeah. So for this guy, we only had morphine and he was, a, he's a big dude. Like this guy was a big guy. So I think I given him a couple of may I've topped him up a couple of times because our, our, wait time was really long. And he was the one that pointed out the patient was the one that said like, Hey, I don't hear a bird in the air yet. And I was like, well shit, how much time has gone by? Yeah. And, and this was, this is a story that I tell every single time I go to or teach an army EMS class when it comes to the missed report.
0: Mm, okay.
1: You're familiar with the missed report. Yes. Okay. So, um, so we have our nine lines that we call just to, you know, get a medical evacuation apparatus in the air or to you in some way, shape, or form, which you know consists of where you are, what type of patient you have, and you know, do you need extra stuff, what the area is like, all these different considerations. And then your missed report is more specific to what's going on, like, you know, your mechanism of injury, uh, treatments, that sort of thing. Yeah. So in the case of this, it's that telephone, it's that you're relaying information to non-medical people who are relaying information to non-medical people who are relaying information to non-medical people right. who are eventually relaying information to medical people. So at the time when I happened upon my patient, I had called it out as a bilateral amputation because just seeing the blood, seeing the one partial, and I made the assumption there were two partials. So that's what I called out. Sure. So our RTO called it up to our talk as a bilateral amputation, and they called it up to higher, and so on and so forth. So higher caught it as bilateral laceration. Oh, no. And downgraded our our flight. Oh, no. Yeah. So there's all this radio chatter back and forth about it. And again, you're the medic on ground. You have no idea any of this is going on. You're just treating your patient. Yeah. So the patient brings up that hey, I don't hear a bird in the air. And, and I call back, hey, what's the time when the bird and they're like, wait one. And then I never get a response. So eventually, randomly and without warning, a bird touches down on the ground. I'm like, oh, sweet. Okay. So Great. They're here. Yeah. So we have them on this uh, foxtrot litter, which is like a very small, it's like a miniature sked. It's, it's awesome for carrying around. Can't speak highly enough of these things. So but,
0: people that, <laughs> that don't know, a sked, <laughs> you explained that right. to me. A sked is like, oh, it's like, it's rolled up really thick plastic that you can just yes. slide everywhere. They're really fun if someone like pulls you around in them. They get really, really hot. It's it's like a really cheap like sled, like a- I don't
1: know. It's like a flexi sled. It's a sled that like bends, but it like wraps around you as well.
0: Led for casualties, which is probably why they yeah. call it a skid.
1: Skid, yeah.
0: <laughs> so yours is smaller.
1: <laughs> but this one was smaller and I'd never experienced it. We just had them in the aid station and we played with them and I was like, this is phenomenal because it's okay. so much smaller.
0: Yeah, they're pretty big, the skids.
1: It doesn't have the uh, the sides that roll up. Oh, okay. So it's just smaller. It was great. And this first patient we used it on was like a pretty big guy, like I said. So.
0: But he still fit on
1: it. But he still fit on it. And it's a six man lift you know Mm -hmm. so we got six men and we lifted him up and we danced our way back through the minefield and we got to this black hawk and i did my best fastest breakdown of my patient i was like he had morphine at this time and the tourniquets were at this time and yada 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 (laughs) just rattling it off to this guy under the blades of this black hawk he's just looking at me and i get done and he says, okay. And he turns around and walks away and I'm like, there's no way in hell he got that. Yeah. And I thought the exchange was so weird. I remember thinking like how, I remember like having to like sort of like motion with my documentation again so that he took it. Yeah. Like he was just going to go. So he took my documentation and he left and they flew away. And, you know, we work our way back to Hyena. Route Hyena goes through the Horn of panjoy So my outpost was, you know, you have the uh, Argandab come down into the the dory and you know the horn is essentially where they meet so we're like kind of just around that area and then like the red deserts south of that so hyena kind of drives to the point almost so we're kind of just right off of that we kind of get back to route hyena and when I got back, I remember my battalion commander, who was like s- this super intimidating dude, he was like, <laughs> Captain America, this dude was just like, he was super intense, super intimidating. Yeah. And he pulls me, I was a private at the time. He was like, Private Hopkins, This one to say, we're really sorry about what happened out there. I'm like, yeah, okay, okay, sir. It's, it's not a problem. Like, you know, like, he's like, we're really, ha- we're really proud of you, what you did and yada, yada, yada. And I had no idea what he was talking about. Yeah. Until I talked to our PA who told me like all the radio chatter. He had hopped in our MEV, which we hadn't used yet, our medical evac vehicle. We hadn't actually driven anywhere. He and our treatment NCO and like some other group of Bravos went into security and drove these strikers out there. We hadn't driven them anywhere. The route wasn't clear. They just drove and they waited for me like at the closest point on Hyena, waiting for me to bring the patient. And I had no idea they were there. You know, there's like all this other drama going on because of this like messed up radio call. So then, you know, flash forward a few years, you know, when I'm out of Afghanistan, I'm out of Alaska and I'm sitting in a bar in the Niagara County, New York area talking to this to this guy who wrote this book and he was like, "Hey, yeah, by the way, you know, we tracked down what had happened and some guys were doing a flyby in a Black Hawk and caught the radio chatter like some non-medical personnel."
0: Ah. Uh...
1: They caught the radio chatter and they decided that they were going to pick up your casualty and they're the ones who stopped and they weren't the PJs. They were just like some dudes. So I was like, well, that makes sense because I rattled off all this medical stuff. And they were like,
0: yeah, whatever. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and it's funny reading this book. You get some of the uh, the casualties point of view about these privates that are in the back of this uh, Black Hawk, And he like refers to them as robots. And I'm like, well, they're probably mortified at this like mangled dude. that's like not part of their mission, you know?
0: Yeah. Like, how did you get here?
1: Like, they wouldn't know what to do anyway. So
0: yeah. Oh, my God.
1: That's craziness. That's insane. So
0: the guy's fine, the Air Force.
1: Yeah. So the Air Force guy, he's fine. He's doing well. Fine, relatively. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it stayed below the knee. It's an above the knee amputation. He has a really good prosthetic. He is like a phenomenal dude. He's a firefighter now. We're friends on Facebook.
0: That's
1: awesome. Yeah. Yeah. He reached out like very quickly after his injury, wanting to know some like very specific details. You know, we have kind of kept up with him and stuff. He's like a power lifter. He just, he does all these phenomenal things like phenomenal things for like people with all of their appendages yeah and just the fact that he he does it with one less leg is just amazing so he's um living his dream of becoming a firefighter right now so kudos to him
0: yeah and that's so cool that you get to follow up with him
1: yeah and he's one of very few i i have a couple of casualties that i have on facebook but i don't think some of them know that i was their medic in some cases
0: that's a very interesting part of being a military medic that you wouldn't you don't get in civilian medicine you don't follow people i mean I can follow people professionally in primary care, but in mm-hmm. in EMS, I didn't follow people. If I ever found out what happened to somebody, it was on the news that they died.
1: Yeah. It, you know, it's kind of a rare thing, even in military medicine, but it, it's based on, were they your unit? Right. You know, and, and in this case, this guy wasn't, he was in the Air Force, but we had known a lot of the same people and he had kind of sought me out. Uh, some of the other people were like soldiers from my unit. So I, I think I was already friends on Facebook with right. him.
0: So are there any other stories you want to talk about? Anything about coming back to civilian medicine or?
1: So I don't know. Is that even coming back to civilian medicine. For me, it was actually just coming to civilian medicine. I wasn't oh, yeah. associated right. in any way with it. And I mean, I had a hard time with it initially because of, you know, you come back, you come out of your deployment with a lot of fire and brimstone, mm-hmm. and, you know, fire in your belly and wanting to do this stuff. And then you rank up and you start overseeing soldiers. After I'd gotten back and, you know, I was, like I said, I was a private when I was deployed. I became a specialist while I was there. You know, I got my my five and became a sergeant. And I didn't really know what that meant at first. And I finally got the opportunity to kind of get some soldiers under me. And then that sort of led to this spot uh, for the forward aid station for some field problems we had coming up. So I, I got the opportunity to actually like you know, be the NCOIC of this forward aid station and kind of learn it a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then I just sort of like stayed there. I didn't, I didn't leave this headquarters element, our main NCO, this E7 uh, left and we didn't have a replacement for him, So I kind of took over those duties as well. So I became this like E5 who was in charge of these like 49 (laughs) weeks and doing all the stuff that was like way above my pay grade and like way above my knowledge base and like my general like leadership ability. But you
0: Adapt. You kind
1: of adapt and overcome, you know, <laughs> you do what you can. You know, all of the officers that were involved in that process were like super understanding and like gave me a lot of leeway and like knew that I was on this like big learning curve and they were really great. And, you know, when I was, when I was overstepping my bounds, sometimes they didn't necessarily fuck me down right away. So that was very kind of them and I appreciate that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, coming out of that scenario where like suddenly like you're, you're the NCO in charge of everybody. And now you're out of the military and now you're in a civilian hospital and you're literally at the lowest, like the entry-level nursing position. Yeah. It's kind of a big culture shock. Like yeah. I was an advanced EMT. I when you go through your military training, you come out of it being back then it was EMTB, a basic EMT. Now it's I think just EMT. And I wanted to get my paramedic before I left the military, but I didn't have enough time in service to go through the entire program. So I went with an advanced DMT. Mm-hmm. And then I moved to Massachusetts where they don't really use advanced DMT. Yeah, DMTs. they
0: don't recognize
1: them. Yeah, not at all. So I was working you know, as an entry-level nursing physician, and I was learning all this cardiology stuff, and it was great. But at the same time, there's all these things you see in the hospital that are just normal functions of your day-to-day in the military, like putting in IVs, drawing blood, and that sort of thing. And, you know, you really want to take the opportunity to show the things that you're good at. Right. And just because of your position, you know, you don't, when you're in the military, you don't think about things like, you know, legal liability and like,
0: yeah, you know, yeah.
1: things that hospitals worry about.
0: Yeah. You can't just go start, starting IVs all willy nilly. But in the yeah, military, like, they're like, oh, sure. You want to learn? Here, go ahead. You can do it.
1: Yeah. Like, I remember like doing a dental block on an Afghan, uh, a local national, because there was no other way that he would possibly get a tooth pulled. My PA was like, all right, we'll put this down a block in and I'll pull the tooth. And I was like, are you serious, sir? <laughs> and that's just what you do when you're overseas because that's what has to happen. You know, these people need some sort of treatment and they can't find it anywhere else.
0: Yeah, that would not happen in the civilian world. It would
1: not happen in the civilian world. Yeah, two different types of medicine.
0: I would not do a dental block, and I would not pull someone's teeth as a nurse practitioner.
1: (laughs) It was a very strange situation because I had walked in on it. This is a completely different story, but this was that um, very clinical PA that I told you about. He he was reading a book. There's a a local national sitting on one of our trauma tables with another friend there and an interpreter as well. And uh, he was reading. He was like, hey, l- look at this real quick. Read this. What do you, what do you read? And I, we kind of talked about it a little bit. He's like, okay, great. And I was like, why are you reading this? He's like, well, I'm about to pull this guy's tooth. You want to help? And I was <laughs> like, oh, shit. I'm like, yeah, okay. He was like, all right, do you know where this location is? Can you find the landmark? I was like, yeah, I think so. And then, you know, we, we did it. So it's interesting. It's an interesting thing. Like, you know, doing everything and then coming to a situation that you really just can't. And it's a, a big part of that is understanding that you can't and why you can't. I fought it for a while. I I was like, well, okay, well, if it's just like the name of my position, let's change the name of my position to something else. Like, you know, I watch these RNs do like not great IVs or not great blood draws or they struggle with it, you know? And like, yeah. I do what I can to instruct, which isn't necessarily well-received because not everyone knows your history or not everyone knows. Oh,
0: I can imagine that would be very not well-received because yeah. they didn't know.
1: It's happened quite a bit. There's been nurses that have been like, we've had patients who are like in respiratory distress and they're like, he's in a lot of pain. Should I do morphine? And I'm like, no.
0: Yeah.
1: Maybe the CA shouldn't be the one telling you, no, you shouldn't push morphine on this person in respiratory distress. You know, like. Yeah. But at the same time, there's another side of the coin. It's like you come from, you know, this traumatic emergency medicine background and you don't necessarily Know how things would function in a hospital setting, you know. In certain emergencies, we would send them to the hospital, which is where these people are already doing medicine. So
0: I ran into this issue when I was doing my undergrad nursing. So I'm a nursing student. You were the lowest of the low again, Mm -hmm. and I had done ten years doing nine one one EMS, and the people like you have no idea what you're talking about. And I was like, well, no, nursing instructors who had done something that where they didn't do anything like trauma stabbings or they had no idea and I'm like, Well, you would do this and you do that, and they're like, You're a no it all, shut your mouth. <laughs> so I yeah, I get it. It's it's hard. It's it's very frustrating. You want to go to the level you were at and then keep going, not take a step back and be taking it from someone that's kind of being weird.
1: Yeah. I mean there's two factors. There's there's your pride, yep, which you, you need to not, not be yeah. a factor, essentially. And then there's like yeah. patient safety. And like, I will always speak up when it comes to patient safety. And it's something that you just have to accept. Like maybe I won't make a snide remark when I see somebody doing something not 100% right, but isn't detrimental to a patient or patient safety.
0: It must be a little comforting having worked in pediatric critical care before having a child.
1: You know what? I think it helped for sure. Especially like being um, not only just working in pediatrics, but also just like being a CA in pediatrics. Yeah. Changing lots of diapers, comforting lots of babies. I think that definitely helped my own baby. So that definitely just heard mommy say, daddy's busy.
0: (laughs) Can you say podcasting?
1: (laughs) So, uh... (laughs) Can you hear her?
0: Cameo appearance. Yeah. <laughs> That's cute. <laughs>
1: yeah, I think sometimes I talk about this big difference between the military side. In the civilian side, and it's just based on my experience, is that when you're in the military, when you're a medic with the infantry, you know, you kind of need to keep a certain professional distance. And it's hard because, like, these are the guys who you live with. They're your friends. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in my own experience, I would keep my platoon arms length sometimes just because they were the guys who if I was out and about, I was going to have to treat. And emotions definitely – you know, they, they're a factor when you you have to treat somebody, you know, like yeah. you need to think clearly and you can't be kind of overcome. That being said, like you kind of like recede into your medics and you know, they're your family that you you kind of emote with more th- than anyone else. Yeah. And then they get injured. And then you like, like, I remember this, we had this one, it's actually the same incident where that uh, triple amp I told you about earlier had happened, but we had a medic get hit on one of our ops. And uh, I was actually I wasn't part of my platoon anymore. I had the medic who delayed his deployment because he was having a kid got to country and he took over that spot. And I kind of went back to my old spot in fourth platoon. So, um, I was in the Fister Vic, which you know, the, the vehicle for the guys who call in Mm -hmm. different things, the element that was patrolling took contact. It was a, it was this this operation that was kind of joint with this engineering, the Sapper unit, they were launching what they called the APOPs. They shoot a rocket forward with a, a chain with deck cord on it. and Oh, yeah, yeah. They launch it forward on a path and then they do a sensitivity debt for like any IEDs that are along a the path. Mm-hmm. They went on this, this operation and they just did that down a path. So our element was just pulling security for them. So our first platoon element was pulling security for them and the medic in this element was actually like one of the younger one of the younger medics
0: the one that had had a kid
1: no this is a different medic okay the guy who had a kid just took me out of my spot but that wasn't the element that was out this was a this was the first platoon okay so they were doing their thing he was out there you know with his guys and they took some contact and i'm a little unclear as to what exactly it was that hit them but some sort of larger some larger caliber something had passed between his legs and it caused some trauma to his thigh he wasn't shot necessarily but he had a big chunk of his thigh that was missing Mm -hmm. so um you know, I remember being in, in the vehicle and they had called his battle roster number. Mm-hmm. In this case, it was like CL, something, something. And, you know, I, was, I remember sitting there thinking like, CL, who is that? Like, who's CL? And then the only person I could think of was one of my medics. Not my medics, but like one of my fellow medics. Right. So I like hopped out of the truck and I like sprinted across this, this um, CP that we had set up that was not really cleared, but I didn't really think about that.
0: Collection point?
1: Uh, command point.
0: Command point
1: in this case so like we had our all of our strikers were out, and then in the center of that was you know the commander's vehicles and stuff in the command vehicles mm. so they fell back to the commander's vehicles and they called in in the nine line from there so we had like this medic and then one of the afghan police guys was hit so you know all of the medics kind of converged in this point and like we we're all really focusing on this one medic that that was hit, and he's okay like he was fine but we turn it kid the shit out of him you know and you know dress his wound and stuff like that we took care of the ANCOP guy as well but you know like we definitely responded more emotionally because that was like hey that's one of our own
0: yeah of course and, and
1: that's the whole reason why you like you know you kind of keep certain people at arm's length while you're overseas now that being said you, you take that mentality as a medic and you translate that to pediatric cardiology you know you need to relate to these kids you need to get them to trust you you can't really keep them at arm's length emotionally they relate to you more doing the opposite by like you kind of being emotional with them and like kind of connecting with them in that regard. So that was a huge takeaway, a huge difference for me from the civilian side to the military side was like a lot of these kids and inpatient, especially like I built a relationship with because, you know, they, I needed them to trust me for me to do my job.
0: Well, thank you for letting me take up so much of your Saturday night.
1: Oh yeah. Nope. Not, not a problem at all. Not a problem at all. Thank you for having me. This has been a nice conversation.
0: So before we go, you're actually a singer-songwriter, and you made the podcast amazing custom intro music that we heard at the beginning of the episode, and I'm going to be playing one of your original songs at the end of the episode. Do you want to plug your social media and YouTube?
1: I do have a music YouTube channel. I have so few followers that I don't even have a easy short YouTube name but www.petesingthings.com because i am Pete and i occasionally sing things and then post them on the internet so you can follow that that uh, address will get you there so yeah, I, so I did a bunch of videos last year because I was, I was trying out for the voice at the urging of my sister-in-law and, uh, it was, it was like super fun. I, I used to play music when I was a lot younger. I kind of stopped because I was like in the military and stuff. I, I just kind of got back into it. It was a lot of fun. So I think I'm going to actually start doing it again really soon. Yeah. Pete and yeah. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun.
0: Thank you for being here. And if anyone wants to listen to more episodes, they can subscribe. Always give us some ratings or reviews. And follow us on social media. Facebook and Instagram are Antidotes Podcast. Twitter is Antidotes Pod. My Twitter is Christine the NP. And I will see you all next week. Bye.
1: Bye Bye-bye. the land.